Welcome to the BGSM Podcast. I'm Daniel Friedman, and today I feel very privileged to be speaking with Dr. Jane Thornton about physical activity prescription. Dr. Thornton is a sports medicine physician and researcher currently based in London, Ontario in Canada, and is an international advocate for physical activity. Alongside a super impressive medical career, Dr. Thornton is also a world champion and Olympic rower for Canada. Dr. Thornton, thank you for being on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you. What does 23 and a half hours mean to you? Well, 23 and a half hours is a, is a concept really original to uh, Dr. Mike Evans, a colleague of mine in Toronto, or was in Toronto. He's basically a, an interesting spin on physical activity guidelines and understanding how positive physical activity can be from an overall health perspective. Dr. Evans really was wrestling with this question around the time that I was uh, in medical school at Toronto at the same time and essentially came up with a, the idea that if there was one best thing we could do for our health, what would it be? So he came at the question, I think, a little bit backwards in the sense of not kind of pushing physical activity per se, but really looking at where the be- best evidence is and uh, came up with that concept of 23 and a half hours, essentially, we, we can be doing what we want with our day, but reserve that other half hour of the day for physical activity to get the best bang for a buck for, for our health perspective. And uh, I was lucky enough to hear that message when I was going through medical school, after I had done my own uh, number of years of research on the topic, and just thought it was a brilliant way to share a message that was non-threatening to patients um, using whiteboard an- animation and, and uh it prompted me to reach out to him and, and start working on this idea a little bit further. Why should we make our day harder and avoid sitting disease? Yeah, so uh, another uh, a kind of a spin-off project from that, uh, myself, Dr. Mike Evans, and a team of uh, great people, including designed, uh, designers, patient advocates, uh, essentially thought the next step would be to explore some concepts about just uh, using uh, kind of key phrases like tweaking our weeks and uh, thinking about ways to put physical activity into our our daily lives. And I think really when you look at our lives today in general, we've really trying to design comfort into our lives in whatever way, shape or possible, just even thinking of cars to get everywhere in Canada were pretty brutal for having uh, cars to get places that we could easily probably cycle or walk to, but also kind of orchestrating physical activity in our lives when the the opposite is more convenient. So the, the premise of Make Your Day Harder and uh, that kind of uh, website that we, kind of pilot website that we created was to, uh, to get patients and the general public talking about ways to become physically more active and share kind of movement hacks, if you will, to, uh, to put a little bit of physical activity in their days. In 2016, you led the Canadian Academy of Sport and Exercise Medicine consensus statement on physical activity prescription that was published in the BJSM. What does the evidence say about physical activity prescription? Just how effective is it? Yeah, the, the position statement was a great collaborative work from a a bunch of people who are really experts in the field here in Canada, but also with some great input from the sport and exercise medicine societies around around the world. So uh, we had uh, uh, endorsements from nine different societies, and a lot of people weighed in on on these particular concepts. 
specifically, we know that there's a good amount of evidence supporting the benefits of physical activity on at least uh, 30 chronic conditions, um, and that it's also quite cost-effective in terms of using physical activity in primary care, where I'm based out of, even if you look at things like cardiovascular disease alone. But essentially, what we do know that it's effective at increasing physical activity levels if we counsel, for if primary care physicians uh, counsel on physical activity, but uh, specifically looking at clinical outcomes like blood pressure, uh, hemoglobin A1C, so a marker of blood sugar control in type 2 diabetes, uh, and also things like important positive effects on mental health, which is a big topic these days, and uh, reducing things like depression, risk of depression, and, and also looking at cognitive function and, and uh, uh, falls, falls risk in, uh, in older adults. How does it compare to other lifestyle counselling interventions that you would see primary care physicians performing in consultations like smoking cessation or alcohol counselling? Yeah, I think uh, that's always one of the challenges that when we as primary care physicians talk to our patients about behavioural change. Uh, and, and I think uh, it's not just the difficulty of doctor to patient, uh, but even if we think in our own lives how difficult it is to to sustain a behavior change uh, that we'd like to to see in our own lives without prompting. So obviously, I mean, it depends on the, the patient population, the country, uh, the way of counseling, the amount of time that we have per clinic visit. But e- even if we just compare to something like smoking, sometimes uh, statisticians and researchers like to use a number uh, needed to treat, so NNT. So it's basically a stat looking at how many people we would have to counsel or, or treat in order to see a positive effect. And um, an interesting one with exercise and physical activity is essentially if we're trying to get, if we're counseling on physical activity for adults, for example, and we look at the, or the really global guidelines of about 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity per week, generally, uh, if we use brief physician counseling, that number needed to treat is 12, effectively meaning we need to counsel about 12 patients in order for one person to reach uh, those guideline levels. But uh, when you think about that, um, looking kind of at a comparable health benefit, like smoking, for example, asking or getting a patient to to quit smoking, um, that has a number needed to treat of about 50 to 120, meaning that we have to counsel many, many more patients in order to see someone achieve that uh, goal of smoking cessation. I wouldn't, uh, I would say both are incredibly important to discuss, but it's it's interesting, one of those things that we often get uh, caught up in the idea that as physicians, we won't have a measurable impact on our on our patients' uh, behavior or or health behaviors, I should say. And and in reality, I think we uh, do ourselves a disservice if we think of ourselves as unable to to have an impact. Dr. Thornton, if it's all right with you, let's dive straight into a clinical example. A 68-year-old female who is mainly sedentary and has newly diagnosed and untreated hypertension comes to see you. She used to walk her dog on nearby trails, but she's now worried about falling over. What do you need to think about when prescribing physical activity to this patient, and how would you write the physical activity prescription? Yeah, I think this is a, it's a it's a great uh, great example in the sense that it touches on a few key parts of physical activity, and one being really. Uh, so I, I teach physicians and medical students uh, generally. 
And, and a lot of it is really about how we organize ourselves to have a discussion to patients about physical activity. So usually I start with things like how to provide an initial assessment, how to prescribe, and then how to basically signpost to other resources that may be helpful to them. So if I think about this woman, uh, initially, as from the physician standpoint of things, when we encounter someone with a chronic condition, I think the first question at the top of our minds is, is it safe for the patient in front of us to engage in physical activity? So we probably, most of us should know um, that it's it's good for us and it's good for our patients, but is it is that actually safe? And that's one of the, the first questions that I try to deal with when teaching. There's a lot of good algorithms, texts and articles on this, and certainly I can um, send some links or leave some links on the, the podcast page on, on particular um, algorithms, but essentially it's really going through things like understanding where the patient is coming from in terms of their physical activity currently, what their preferences are, and then talking to them about specifically things about their condition, their chronic condition. So signs and symptoms, if they have known disease, uh, then to be able to have a conversation as to whether or not medical clearance is needed. Um, and then also talking to them about the intensity of physical activity. So um, the American College of Sports Medicine, for example, has some good health screening guidelines for physicians to use uh, and really kind of reflecting on active signs and symptoms. So the ones that we would probably be familiar with is things like pain or discomfort in the chest, neck, jaw, arms, that kind of thing, shortness of breath, dizziness, uh, dizziness or syncope, palpitations, all sorts of things that might kind of clue us into the fact that we might need to be able to spend a little bit more time with the patient in front of us in terms of physical activity. There are absolute and relative contraindications, but mainly I, I think the take-home would be that any patients kind of with unstable or uncontrolled symptoms should be reviewed before having a discussion about physical activity. But, but really, I think the, the main message that I try to leave with, with physicians is that even if you have a sedentary patient in front of you with stable chronic conditions and a kind of a normal uh, history and physical, uh, that really a gradual progression of towards um, guidelines or towards incorporating some moderate or phys uh, vigorous physical activity into their daily lives is, is probably okay. But really that initial assessment can, can help us guide those conversations. Uh, and then in terms of prescribing physical activity, one of the things I think we're coming to as a kind of a research field, but also from the clinical lens is that it should be dependent on patient preference. So uh, there used to be an acronym that we would use a lot in terms of FIT principle. So frequency, intensity, time and type. And most listeners would probably be familiar with that. And since then, a few people uh, have come up with an extra F. Uh, to start off that FIT acronym in terms of fun. So keeping it simple, keeping it patient preference. And I, I we, interestingly, there was a study that I, um, uh, that was done in Toronto and a subsequent study was a part of uh, really trying to look at patient attitudes towards physical activity counseling. And it was a qualitative study and they uh, interviewed and had some focus groups with varied demographic of people coming to an urban uh, family medicine clinic. And the main message from the patients were really that uh, we shouldn't necessarily be just handing them a set of guidelines to achieve 150 minutes, for example, try not to be preachy kind of to them in terms of what they must do, that exercise, physical activity is more than just going to the gym. 
but also having that little aspect that it is part of their responsibility to kind of pass over some homework, so to speak, uh, for patients to go home and try and then follow up with their with their physicians. So I, I think if I were to just leave with maybe five, I guess, practical steps once we consider the patient in front of us uh, is really asking about physical activity at every consultation. So if we use this um, example in mind to to ask her uh, about what kind of physical activity she does and, and, and what her preferences are, looking at a written prescription, and I can talk more about that later about why that's helpful, but it usually just takes about 30 seconds to do that, so it's not really time intensive. And then encouraging the patient to, to measure and record their physical activity, and that can be through a number of ways. And then uh, really make sure that involve community resources um, and then follow up with the patient. So for this particular patient, uh, there's a few things that come to mind. First of all, she's over the age of 65. In Canada, at least, we have different guidelines in the older adults. But really, the only thing to add to kind of 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity is about two times a week of doing um, uh, resistance training, which is also across the board in the global guidelines, but also some to consider some kind of balance and proprioception kind of training uh, in order to decrease the risk of falls. So if the, the one thing, too, it's interesting about this case is that oftentimes if a patient has a, a dog or something like that that they can walk, uh, that actually does help with trying to get people active or more active. And it can be a big transition in the wrong direction if a, if a loved pet uh, dies, for example. So things like that in terms of really uh, trying to drive those practical recommendations home. Um, for this patient, for example, newly diagnosed hypertension, it's worth a conversation about including activity and or medications. And I was really struck by the excellent work done by uh, Nasi and Ionidas in terms of BMJ uh, and BGSM in, in terms of their guidelines and, or sorry, their systematic review and meta-analysis looking at uh, medications, sorry, versus exercise and uh, how equivocal at the end of the day they may be. So it's really worth that conversation for this patient in particular about looking those at those specifics and making sure it's something that the patient feels that she's owning um, when she comes away with an exercise uh, prescription. Let's continue by talking about the physical activity prescription, the written prescription. Why is mm -hmm. it so important to actually write it out? Well, actually, I would say probably it's coming from a couple of angles. So the research seems to show that patients who have a written prescription seem to stay with the program longer. Maybe it's because they have a written reminder. Maybe it's because it's signed by their physician. And for better or for worse, we're still a pretty credible source of health information, even with uh, all the information on the Internet. We are certainly curators of uh, health information that, that uh, patients seem to prefer uh, in terms of, of hearing uh, validated kind of um, therapies. The other part is actually probably coming from the physician standpoint. Uh, physicians, I think, would take it will take it more seriously once they write it down on exercise in a prescription format, and will help in terms of follow up and just uh, keeping it at top of their minds that this is actually as effective in many conditions, or sometimes more effective for the patient's chronic conditions in front of them. So it uh, it puts a reminder really uh, on both uh, physician and patient about in terms of how important it is 
certainly when we think about personalizing physical activity or thinking about effective dose and so on, it, it helps to write those things out and have some kind of goals to, to track. If we focus on our patient, the 68-year-old female who's coming to see you, how would you go about talking about intensity of physical activity with her? Intensity is an interesting one because there's so many people that have heart rate monitors and pedometers and fitness apps and we have our our smartphones with uh, built-in accelerometers and uh, a lot of people have different ways of viewing uh, and tracking their own physical activity. I What I'm reminded of because I was a researcher first before a clinician and we have evidence for fitness apps, we have evidence for pedometers, certainly probably more evidence for pedometers than anything else right now. But in terms of tracking, you know, heart rate, heart rate variability, respiratory rate, all sorts of things. But then when you're confronted with a person in front of you who has potentially challenges with the social determinants of health that as a researcher, I really wasn't uh, conscious of to the same degree, then the conversation changes. And uh, especially someone who may not be physically literate, let's say, or uh, have access to to these kinds of measures. So one of the easiest ways, uh, certainly the, the position statement, we talk about a bunch of different ways to kind of measure physical activity, um, looking at heart rate and so on. But for the patient in front of me, especially if she had uh, some challenges with respect to uh, in terms of access, in terms of finances, uh, in terms of social supports, then one easy way that I talk about usually is using the talk test, which is uh, essentially uh, talking about trying to find moderate intensity for, especially if she's um, fairly sedentary, uh, looking at things like if she is able to maintain a conversation with a person beside her, either real or imaginary, that she's probably in the right zone if she's kind of you know, exercising, still able to maintain a conversation. She might be having her heart rate come up a little bit and and maybe breaking a sweat. But that conversation is crucial. If she's just able to get out grunts and whispers and barely able to chat, then she's probably exercising too uh, and too high of an intensity. And then certainly if she's able to kind of sing at the top of her lungs or that kind of thing, I'd say she might not be... uh, working as hard as uh, as modern intensity would dictate. But certainly there's lots of ways. The interesting thing with patients with, with hypertension is we do need to think about controlling blood pressure, certainly. So making sure that their blood pressure is fairly controlled, uh, not too high. So for example, not over 180, over 100, for example, some different types of physical activity can affect systolic blood pressure, especially things like overhead exercise, but uh, also keeping in mind things like medication. So heart rate is not something I would use to track if our patient was, for example, on a beta blocker or something along those lines, which might mask those things. So in any case, in certain chronic conditions, there are a few things to be taken into consideration. And so I think the talk test is probably one of those things that can be fairly valid and easy to follow for most chronic conditions. You've been listening to part one of a two-part BGSM podcast with Dr. Jane Thornton. We are sorry to make you wait until next week for part two, but make sure you tune in to learn more about physical activity prescription tools and resources to be used in the clinical setting. In the meantime, you can follow BJSM and stay up to date via the usual social media channels. 
or download the BJSM app where you can find more podcasts, our latest articles, and other great content on the blog. As always, we hope you have a physically active day.